This is Unchanging Education with Dan Clemens, Season 2, Episode 6, Dewey, The Undoing. Situating John Dewey's thought and legacy as the grandfather of student-centered ed. I think the first and most important point when thinking about Dewey is this relationship between experience and subjectivity or the subjective and how this is meant in a way as a new mode to replace a system of education that was based on not on experience but on knowledge and not on the subjective but on the objective so the way that these terms are typically coupled would be as you know objective knowledge versus subjective experience. Dewey certainly being on the side of subjective experience as something that needs to be emphasized or that is not at all or perhaps simply just not sufficiently emphasized in teacher-centered education. And so I want to um, dig into this, the implications of this distinction a little bit first. And thinking about teacher-centered education as, again, as predicated upon objective knowledge, that, that it's been said that philosophy begins in wonder. And I think the same is true of the educational philosophy of teacher-centeredness, that there's a sense of, uh, of wonder and beauty or a sense of awe in this pursuit of knowledge itself. And it entails something like, something approximating, a full faith and trust placed into the teacher. So certainly the, the success or the strength of teacher-centeredness is based upon a strong teacher. And one of those, one of the most important qualities is that the teacher is knowledgeable about whatever the subject, topic, whatever the teacher is teaching, right? Instead of wonder in the um, subjective experiential SC mode would be something probably much closer to doubt and a tendency not to, you know, instead of something like full faith and trust, a phrase I used, uh, for TC, that uh, doubt or to question everything. And this is often, like, the most palatable form of this is probably what's called critical thinking. So it almost has to be admitted that, especially in the, uh, in the early stages of education, um, I'd say probably at least the first half of K to 12, uh, if not more, that there is a sense of, you know, putting one's faith um, in the teacher, that it, it doesn't have to be blind faith, but something, something probably more like a leap of faith, um, insofar as, you know, constant justification of why we're doing this, why we're learning this, why it's important. Um, while these can be important questions um, they're they're only profitable if they are 
you know, really thoughtfully posed and not as a way to sort of derail, um, you know, classroom learning. The, the other point I've discussed is this relationship between effort and interest. And uh, it's worth repeating here again, I think. So again, TC, objective knowledge. It has more of an artistic or an aesthetic assumption in terms of, you know, the spirit of education. Again, it's beginning in wonder rather than being situated in doubt. And it also depends upon the sense, well, we simply need to get the effort of students first. And then later, an interest, a genuine interest can grow. And there's a patience that's uh, needed for this in the sense of you, know, you have to, in a way, you have to wait for the audience to come to you. That in a sense that the learner has to be willing. And that this is different from the SC approach, which increasingly wants to get the interest first, right? And then once you get the interest of the student, then, only then, in some cases, are you able, um, is it reasonable to expect their effort? So this can lead to a problem, I think, whereby there's a cheapening of education that in order to get their interest, we're selling students that we, um, and that we're willing to deploy some sort of entertaining facade, something like edutainment, right? That's focused on getting their interest first and, you know, then getting their effort later. So one of the problems here is, is this general problem with critical thinking that I think is not, probably not well understood. And it's hard to articulate, um, you know, partially because everyone in education is so thoroughly conditioned into thinking that critical thinking is, you know, the most important thing. And in a sense, that may be true, but only in the sense that it's something that is achieved more or less at or near the end of a long process of education. So I think in a teacher-centered mode, this is very clear that something like healthy skepticism uh, or doubt in, in its best sense, that this is something that we understand comes later. It's not something that is you know, situated front and center because there's no way to skip to this highly developed capacity that once you become a critical thinker, you are more or less already in the final stages of whatever we might consider being well-educated. And there's certainly a temptation to think, well, if, if well-educated people are critical thinkers, then let's just start getting them onto critical thinking as soon as possible um, and then, then we can somehow expedite the process. But, you know, it's sort of a clumsy metaphor, but this is, there's this idea that we can somehow just skip straight to dessert, 
right, to like the the best, most delicious, uh, you know, juiciest, creamy thing about education, right? The telos, the thing that we're trying to get to at the end. And if we build it in from the very beginning, then that will be productive. But I think the downside here is that by situating education in this, in, in doubt rather than wonder, that we have to question everything rather than put our faith into educators and calling it critical thinking. So when we introduce this kind of skepticism too early on, this skepticism can harden into cynicism. The, this, this, frankly, bad form of skepticism, right? And even to make a distinction here between good doubt and bad doubt. But it isn't even just doubt. It actually goes beyond doubt into disbelief. And that this disbelief can, in a sense, metastasize. And it can create learners or attitudes in learners that are antithetical to education. So it's entirely possible in this view that this emphasis on more critical thinking earlier on is destructive to the aims or the goals of education. And, you know, skipping to dessert or perhaps, you know, uh, skipping to the end of a, a story that you're reading in a novel. I mean, you want to know how it ends. This kind of undisciplined approach, uh, a failure to appreciate, you know, the, the process or the journey. So while skepticism certainly is important, thinking again of Bertrand Russell, um, what we want is at first what he calls a hypothetical sympathy uh, until we know how it feels to, to, to think like or to be a believer in a certain kind of theory or, or a thinker. And then only later is there a revival of the critical attitude. So Russell's just talking about, he, he's in a sense unpacking what it means to see something from both sides. Right. First, you want to act like you are a true believer. And this is the way that a lot of great teachers teach. Right? When they're teaching Plato, they are Plato, and they're giving this full-throated defense, in a sense. This, um, it's also sometimes referred to as full-contact philosophy. Right? And any kind of questions or, um, you know, when students might sort of push back on certain points, the, the lecturer wants to embody um, how that thinker would defend themselves. So again, we need to be wary of these, on the one hand, the, the cheap ways that we're just trying to get students' interest, get them interested. And then, then they're going to be, you know, effortful. Versus this TC Stoic way of getting their effort, that it's simply a requirement. Your effort is, in a sense, demanded. And that this will lead to an interest that is deep rather than cheap. Certainly that's preferable.
when I say deep, I really mean more enduring rather than something that is cheap, um, flashy, but temporary, fleeting. Okay, so the other thing about Dewey that is, you know, extremely important is that he's a reformer, um, that he wants to change education. And that a clean slate would be a good thing, okay? So a clean slate meaning let's wipe away or let's hollow out this old dead curriculum, the traditional way. And from there, it seems that I think that there's an assumption that what we will have instead in its place, once we, you know, clear away the, the brush, that we'll have something that is streamlined, lean, agile, and responsive. But I think and this is a difficult argument to make, certainly, but I, th I don't believe that Dewey would look at what is happening in the modern or perhaps even we might say a postmodern classroom and see that his ideas have borne fruit. Partly because this idea of getting rid of this old dead thing when it's sort of introduced on a mass scale, one of the problems is that it's largely true that average teachers need to be told what to teach and that they're at their most effective in that way. That most teachers, I don't really think, benefit from this uh, anti-classical move into something like being forced to play jazz, right? That teachers are going to benefit from a free-form exploration uh, or a, a free form explorative medium so this introduces the problem of whenever there's a, a reform or a more extreme version of a reform it's anything resembling a reset that it's going to create a vacuum and I don't think that reformers tend tend not to be conservative of course and so they don't really anticipate the problem of creating a vacuum that if we get out this old dead stuff, then something good and better is, is, is bound to emerge or take root. And certainly um, this kind of thinking often doesn't appreciate the immense downsides of, of something much worse filling that void, filling that vacuum. So, in a sense, uh, Dewey is an important thinker. Um, he is, I think, in his own right, perhaps a, a lowercase g great philosopher. And for my purposes, I am, in a sense, casting him into the role of villain. But certainly, he is a thinker who deserves our respect. And he is, in his own sense, um, one of our teachers in a, in a general way and that the problem isn't that that when teachers are becoming you know trained or educated in teaching itself they should um, partake of the great conversation of education itself 
and certainly Dewey is an important part of that. The problem is that I think many, you know, would-be teachers only learn about Dewey or they only seem to hear or read about Dewey. And this goes back to the entire spirit of my inquiry, which is that the only form of education anyone knows is this progressive brand that is today most commonly known as SC. I think increasingly Freire is the the heir apparent. And even if that's the case, most educators, they can only name two educational theorists, and those are Dewey and Freire, uh, that I'm situating here as my grandfather and father of SC, with Rousseau as the background philosophical great-grandfather figure. Probably, it has to be restated here, that another way just, if there's one word that can sum up the, the philosophical difference between SC and TC, it's transmission. The TC sees education as a process of transmission uh, of not just of knowledge, but let's just say of, of knowledge from one generation to the next, from the mature to the immature generation, as it's been phrased. Whereas uh, a sense that this transmission is not good or not important or ought not be the, the thrust of education um, then there's this uh, a progressive uh, in Dewey or a postmodern Marxist in Freire that disruption is better than transmission. That it is just, we need to cease the transmission. That we need to disrupt it. But I think that's only superficially true. The real truth probably is that they want to transmit something else. Or they think that again, that, that they're essentially utopian about this view that if we get rid of the way we're currently doing things, something else better is bound to emerge. So um, the way that teachers come to know about the philosophy of teaching, I think is important and is probably neglected in the sense that I don't think it's seen as very important that teachers know about you know the history of education or, or the great debates of educational philosophy. But perhaps because it isn't much emphasized, then it's you know it's seen that a couple big important figures, or at least the figures that are most important to the professors or teacher trainers, um, that that that's really all that all we have time for. Um, but I think if there was, there's a double-edged sword, that if there was more of an emphasis on, on the history, then perhaps there would just be more Dewey and more Freire, rather than teaching the debates or teaching these controversies in, in pedagogy, in, in its history. And anyway, this lack of a debate, this lack of any contest... Um, again, it's, it's fundamental to this, you know, orthodox problem that education is just this, um, this echo chamber, um, and that there isn't 
a diversity of ideas in education and that this is a problem. So how do we ideologically sustain this new student-centered way? And part, partly as a kind of a cult devoted to Dewey and Freire. And attendant to that is this defensive fable matrix that losing control and authority and discipline are all good things because that opens up this free, creative, educational space. And I think we have to be skeptical of, of, of this tendency to dress up failure and incompetence as features rather than as bugs in the system. And that as a result, our students, our students, are critical and creative thinking problem solvers. This can become a kind of a, a just just a, a catchphrase, and it it becomes it it becomes the way that education sells its own failures at not being able to produce um, self-disciplined and knowledgeable graduates. And this attitude is coupled with a vague anti-Orientalism that Asian students are mere memorizers and possess no thinking ability because they are subjected to order and discipline and authority. We indulge and indeed gorge ourselves upon this myth, this fable, this lie. To justify this path and to make our own decay more palatable, and all for the sake of our own psychological denial. So this is the voice that whispers, so what if we can't compete with other nations in math? They're not creative, and we are, and since being creative is more important, then we're winning. We're winning our own competition simply by redefining the terms. So, coming back to TVSC, teacher versus student-centered learning, indeed there may be a deficiency of viewpoint diversity that education as a field has become orthodox, and again, in, in any kind of orthodox thinking system, it becomes impossible to challenge the worst ideas, and they only proliferate. Philosophical assumptions are not stated or defended because it seems impossible to divorce oneself from Dewey and Freire. And uh, any kind of challenge is, well, challenging these ideas is necessary. Again, thinking of it as a, as a host body and that, that viewpoint diversity acts as the antibodies, white blood cells. And again, I just want to reiterate this, this musical analogy about teacher-centeredness as classical and SC jazz, and that there's this, um, that we need this new, a new teaching style. So, um, 
privately or up to now, I've chalked this up to this problem of uninterrogated assumptions in education, perhaps stemming from the cultish worship of Dewey and Freire, as if educational insights come in these two varieties of a single flavor that seems increasingly antiquated. Even though I think a lot of people think that because they're Dewey and Freirean that they are the cutting edge. The unquestioned and seemingly unquestionable assumption of the field is that student-centered is good and teacher-centered is bad, but not a single argument is advanced in support of this claim. Indeed, what argument needs to be made in the institutionalization of love and compassion? But not a single one of us, as I see it, has signed up to be a missionary. So, this, I mean, this is the argument that it, the only argument that seems to exist, partly because arguments made in defending the only way to think about something, like education, um, they aren't practiced, and they, not only are they not refined, but they, they just become worse with disuse. So, uh, SC just basically, let's say, self-identifies as being loving and compassionate and as being empathetic and or empathetic through affirmation. Love, compassion, empathy, affirmation. And certainly, if you see yourself as all of those things, you don't have to defend who or what you are, but there's there's a, there's a kind of an emotional manipulation or a kind of a blackmail. And I've talked a little bit about this think of the children fallacy. So it's not just that there's a there's a I think a one level of implicit argument here is that TC is not based on love and that this new SC is. Again, a lot of this is can be understood through presentism, that we, the people now in the present, are the... Um, that we celebrate our own unearned moral authority just because we are here now and we sort of sit in judgment of anyone or anything that came before us as lacking our sophistication or goodness. But there's a deeper implication here that not only that, well, the old model of TC wasn't based in love and we are, it goes even further than that, a, a deeper or a, a second level of this implicit argument that teacher-centeredness is actually based on hate. There's a hatred for students. And I think somehow education is great at being able to cash in on this, this sense, this feeling. So, uh, certainly TC is not based on hatred. It's just based on, probably, like fundamentally, we can still think of the three R's, reading, writing, and arithmetic. But it's the, this, the, the presentistic sin that it's guilty of 
is that it's not based on what I might call the five R's of SC. Radical, responsive, relevant, reform, revolution. So, um, thinking about teacher training again, these uh, pre-service teachers, people who are not yet, or who are becoming teachers, they do not get some sort of solid, established pedagogy in their training. And then later, they discover some sort of um, experimental and experiential progressive philosophy. Uh, I think that if if that is how teacher training worked, I think we would basically be in a much better place in terms of education. And it's counterintuitive, and I think that it's... Well, let, let me describe the inverse. Instead, what basically happens is that we start with a kind of a a flimsy and unestablished progressive pedagogy that the things that young or new teachers are told, um, you know, about the importance of love and things like that, um, are really not very helpful to them. And that only later do they come to experience, you know, something like good boring, traditional, teacher-centered styles and methods. Again, this is, you know, trying to jump to the end, like the, the kinds of progressive new conclusions that experienced teachers reach at the end of their careers, partly because they're already, they've already learned how to do all of the good things that make an effective teacher and that those things become passive over decades. And then they reach the end and they, they tend to think in this extremely idealized form. But, you know, in, in a way, it is easy to have a lot of perhaps more, more freedom and creativity in terms of a classroom environment simply because so many of the other things start to be done in an, in an automatic or passive way. But it's not helpful for, like, for a brand new teacher, right? It assumes too much. So we'd be much better off starting with, you know, a solid foundation and then let people discover these, you know, progressive approaches later rather than starting by essentially indoctrinating new teachers into the most progressive ideas possible and then forcing them to later start to develop I think without knowing it right again I think there are I think most of the great teachers they're great teachers not because of their training but in spite of it and that's because they really keep at bay or push back um ignore or even reject student-centeredness they simply don't identify as being teacher-centered but they are so the other problem with this with this 
this inverse or pejoratively this perverse inversion that well instead of just teaching people how to be good teachers and letting them start to emphasize and prioritize you know student-centered free open creative classrooms we start with again with we start with progressivism basically in teacher training nothing ever generates over or across generations because the things that that we train and teach young teachers are things that they end up abandoning maybe at the end of rediscovering them again later on but there's uh that we start in a sense by rejecting the traditional view or the traditional approach and then teachers go into a process where then really the first thing they have to do to become a good teacher is to reject the rejection of the established traditional mode and seek it out from other experienced teachers when they become teachers in schools rather than in universities education schools and that is when they start to experience some of these older ideas and practices so these teachers are denied their own inheritance as as existing in this knowledge tr tradition of education itself so teachers end up with this kind of anti-inheritance right that they that in a sense they begin their teaching practice in becoming a, i would say a great teacher by rejecting a lot of the things that they're told about teaching so you see that there's no transmission it's not the fact that you know one teacher trainer passes this on to that teacher and that teacher is going to pass on what they've learned because there's so much disruption that becomes built in to this system And perhaps, I mean, there is a, a logic here that you cut people off from the tradition and then where do you go? Well, no one can rediscover a lost tradition alone, right? And so you have to come back to, you have to try to come back to these severed connections. But I'm also making an argument that this is partially why education as a field doesn't seem to be really growing or progressing very much. Um, that I still, that it's still just, you know, Rousseau and Dewey and Freire as the important thinkers. And that almost everyone publishing in education agrees with them for the most part. So I'm not going to talk about Dewey very much, but I'm going to talk a little bit more about secondary sources. And again, I mentioned at the outset about casting Dewey in the role of villain here a little bit. But respectfully, I believe. So in this, in the first chapter to education and experience, Dewey clearly contrasts traditional and progressive education. Certainly this should be, you know, required reading, I think and unwittingly also outlines the impossibility of situating progressive ideas for teacher training today. Most B.Ed. students come into the program with no understanding of philosophy, and so cannot grasp really what Dewey means by experience. 
yet they nevertheless inherit the progressive student-centered model and as such are denied their own inheritance of a traditional teacher-centered model. Again, teacher-centeredness does not exist now as it did in Dewey's time as this critique upon the dominant model. It is the dominant model. And it, it only exists in relation to TC as, as a kind of a myth. As well, the old, you know, very bad, no good, awful way that we used to, that teachers just used to be bad and cruel and evil. There ought to be no express preference for traditional or progressive, nor for teacher or student-centered. The sole occupation ought to be the excellence of the teachers for their students. And the question becomes, which model is more likely to participate in excellence? My argument is simple. The model that is most intelligible for the student teacher, the, the, the pre-service teacher or the B.Ed. student here. What results, I believe, is that the philosophical obscurity results in vagueness or vagaries in what teachers actually ought to do. So they eventually revert onto tradition and reject progressiveness. And this is backwards. Again, um, thinking of, uh, just thinking of child rearing here, um, you know, you would probably want to start off a parenting practice by um, by, by frankly conformist socialization and, and sort of accepted norms and traditions. And what very often seems to be a natural course is there's, there's sort of a, a period of teenage rebelliousness that is, you know, rejecting that, that tradition or um, the sort of usual normal or expected um, patterns of a, of a parent-child relationship. And that ultimately, I, I think that that's, that can be recognized as a, as a fairly healthy progression. But um, this idea that in the early life of the child, that the parent is themselves going to be rebellious against accepted norms. And this leaves the child into a position where they enter into a, a kind of a a teenage conservativeness that they have to reject all of these, you know, uh, frankly, you know, weird progressive kind of ideas and that they, they're seeking some sort of real grounding or structure in something. Ideally, we produce young traditional types who later think themselves into progressive pedagogy as they become more sophisticated and philosophically minded or wiser later in their careers and lives. For example, Dewey writes out four questions that characterize the problem that is before progressive education. The first is, what is the place and meaning of subject matter and of organization within experience? Right, so um, why are we teaching what we teach and how do we teach it? Right. What is the place and meaning of the subject matter? Like why are we teaching this or that? And the organization 
within experience, which to me sounds like how are we teaching it, right? So why are we teaching what we're teaching and how are we teaching it? It's certainly a good question for an experienced teacher to be asking, but for someone who at that point, you don't even know the subject matter that you're going to be teaching. Again, it's sort of, it's front-loading too much. Even before coming to this question, that I doubt even above-average, you know, teachers of above-average intelligence could really even understand, partly because it requires so much, so much future knowledge. Again, teachers, very often, early on, they don't know what they're going to be teaching when, when they get a job. The outline of traditional education is so much more attractive. Dewey, an excellent, fair-minded thinker, deserves much esteem for rendering such an even-handed description of education. I'm really being sincere here. Um, in that it does not succumb to a straw man. Teachers do not like to see themselves in the traditional vein because of a pronounced power dynamic, because of a New Age paradox. Teachers are supposed to be more patient and understanding and loving, much like parents to children, than traditional educators have been. And yet these nurturing teachers are also less empowered to improve discipline, let alone punishment, and so become less like parents, in that such control is the sole province of the parent. So, you know, what I'm saying here is that Teachers are increasingly told to be more like nurturing parental type figures, right? Loving, compassionate, empathetic, and affirming. And yet they have less power than ever to be able to act like parents in the sense that parents are in a sense more protective of their children than ever before. But what are the new ways teachers despise traditional ways and this is going to bring up the vacuum problem again right certainly not in the sense of character education i think the character education is was certainly important in tc then it became out of vogue in a secular second phase that was sort of anti-tc and now this third phase the notion that we have to shape the morals or morality of young people via education is perhaps more alive than ever before. Again, this, this fanatical zeal about the kinds of people that we want to make, uh, again, this missionary work of sending these, of creating new missionaries to send out in the word to, you know, of these truths they have to proclaim about you know, current progressive, you know, political standbys, things like racism. So we have this character education that has come roaring back, but it's been decoupled from anything like, you know, going all the way back to, you know, for king and country, and certainly in America, uh, you know, God and country. That it was, that it, there was an intense character education that went away or was dormant in a sense, and that now has come roaring back, coming out of this secular vacuum. Even the method does not seem different. 
the use of power and authority to impose good moral standards. The rules of conduct, moral training, forming habits. But the mood is such that we invite students rather than enforce them. The really pronounced departure that makes traditional ways unpalatable, transmitting the past, or rather transmitting our own cultural past. So I do think that Dewey is a visionary and uh, you know, certainly a bold advocate for a great experiment in education. But as I stated, I think even he would recognize the failure of the experiment and would himself be pragmatic enough to get back to the pedagogical basics he does so well to articulate when he talks about the, the traditional. Now, he talks about the traditional in a way I think is fair. I think the problem is the way that everyone else in education talks about the way Dewey talks about traditional education. Well, insofar as the history of civilization is a corrupt patriarchy, it may seem like the safest thing to do is to jettison the history of any specific field within said civilization. But I would certainly wish for graduates of programs in education to be able to name at least a third educational thinker beyond Dewey and Freire. Educational programs whose graduates can't even name a third are, I think, failing. Okay. The new way or paradigm in education has no relation to Dewey and progressivism. It is altogether hostile, reactive, and transgressive. Again, there's an important distinction between being progressive and transgressive. It reimagines and makes a straw man of all of the bad and wrong content of education as it existed before them, right? Before us, education, before we came along um, in the present, in our, in our presentistic standpoint, everything was bad. And then we arrived on the scene and now, you know, we're here to make everything good. This kind of thinking could only exist in a in a field that was desperately lacking any kind of philosophical intellectual rigor. This transgressive and reactive presentism is strangling education and mangling educators. And so, if any solace to be had there be, it is that this game of giving away and then intense seller's remorse prompting this investigation was irreducibly academic, affected no one but those who played with and experimented with ideas in the bulk of educational theory since Dewey. Okay, let me talk about um, a discussion of Dewey by George Will. And mostly, the rest of what I'm going to say about Dewey is through the eyes of Edmondson, a contemporary educational theorist. So here's a passage from Will about Dewey. The fundamental function of liberal education still should be the transmission of the basic truths of the arts and sciences 
in order to enable students to become critical and independent thinkers. If, however, you believe, as many progressives do, that history's trajectory is knowable and that it is known by an identifiable clarity, then you are also apt to believe that the means of facilitating history's unfolding are known or knowable. Again, knowing that one is on the right side of history, um, as we hear from progressives, um, this is exactly what Will's talking about here. If so, the purpose of higher education is to produce students who can take their place in history's vanguard, enabling it to reach its foreordained destination more quickly and smoothly than it otherwise would. Hence, John Dewey, the foremost theorist of progressive education, said that every teacher should be considered a social servant set apart for the maintenance of proper social order and the securing of the right social growth. The devil is in Dewey's adjectives, proper and right. If you postulate that teachers are custodians of correct politics, it is then natural to define education as Dewey did, as a regulation of the process of coming to share in the social consciousness. Once the cultivation of one proper and right consciousness is declared the government's task and to be administered through public education, a particular uniformity of thought becomes prescriptive. Okay, so coming to Dewey by way of Edmondson. Certainly there are tendencies in Dewey's thought that are anti-traditional, anti-religion, um, even anti-moral education. Certainly anti-memorization, even anti-book learning, heavily focused on passive versus active. Again, um, thinking back to TVSC here, for Dewey, the, the bad early form of education is about you know, objective knowledge. He's interested in subjective experience. Subjective experience in this case is active, whereas objective knowledge is merely passive. So grouping those things together, the teacher-centered is passive objective knowledge, and SC is active subjective experience. Even just based on those terms, there's really, there's no reason to believe that one of those triumvirates is preferable over the other. It is in no way obvious that active um, that active is better than passive. I mean, it's, it's simply that we've just been conditioned to think that active subjective experience, oh, that's good, like that sounds good, that's good education. Whereas passive objective knowledge, I mean, that's, that's bad, that's terrible education. But that's completely based on just bias and prejudice that's been learned. I mean, if we really just thought of it, frankly, if we just looked at those two different descriptions in a purely objective way, we would just see that they're describing two different visions and that there's no obvious conclusion to be reached just from those terms. There's just a way that those terms 
have become loaded that when you hear words like, you know, active and experience and subjective, that, yeah, that we are just ready to, you know, attach to them so eagerly. Passive and objective and knowledge. Um, that we have a distaste just even for these terms. And certainly Dewey is interested in social reform. Okay, so reclaiming essential education. So this is Edmondson saying that his book, the purpose is to explicate the principal elements of Dewey's philosophy and to suggest the ways that his work has harmed American education. In doing so, I hope to call attention to the power of ideas in education, a phenomenon insufficiently understood. In Dewey's case, these ideas, often imported into the schools without sufficient consideration, have gone on to undermine and distort American educational philosophy. Again, I really, uh, I think Edmondson comes close to saying this, but doesn't, is that the current state of educational philosophy is is just largely everyone agreeing on the same idea, that there's very little, there are very few voices, like Edmondson's, for example. The result has been the deterioration, confusion, and disarray we see all around us a situation that will not markedly improve until we acknowledge and understand the intellectual source of our plight. So this is very much in the same, I mean, my, what I'm trying to do here with this podcast is very much in the same spirit of Edmondson's book here about Dewey, that we have a, we have a, a problem at the level of theory, at the level of ideas in education. And we are often so focused on schools, like how can we improve our schools is something we hear all the time. And of course, that makes sense to the, you know, in in popular culture, people might not really be aware of philosophical debates in education. But that is really, I think that's really where, where the fight has to be taken. Because there's not I mean, there are certain things that we can do in schools that we can prohibit um, teachers who have been conditioned to be student-centered through an entire field. But I think the, the pushback against these ideas, not only against Dewey, but against student-centeredness more generally. Okay, Dewey's troubling legacy. My advice to all parents is anything that William Hurd Kilpatrick and John Dewey say do, don't do. Flannery O'Connor. So it's a Flannery O'Connor quote about advising parents do not do anything that Kilpatrick and Dewey say to do, right? The progressive education leaders. Okay, so quoting a little bit here from um, Edmondson's admirable book, The beginning of such an inquiry must be recognition of the extent of Dewey's influence today. Indeed, in this period of crisis in American schools, a sound understanding of the philosophical underpinnings of American education is impossible without a firm grasp of John Dewey's contribution. 
Although the ideas of Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, Dr. Benjamin Rush, and others of the founding generation still enjoy moderate influence here and there in American schools and universities, the prestige of Dewey's thought has long superseded that of the founders. He remains a towering figure. So this just underlines the importance of understanding and contending with Dewey. Dewey's influence, especially his romantic views of human nature. Here we're thinking of Rousseau. Again, I'm trying to trace kind of a, you know, in, in broad steps, uh, Rousseau to Dewey to Freire. And um, again, this romantic view of human nature that very often takes this form that if we simply stop the, stop our socializing efforts, then and just sort of allow human nature to unfold naturally, then we're going to get something better, right? So if a if public education is largely predicated upon controlling uh, or sort of tamping down human nature and all of the, frankly, bad things people might want to or try to do, and Dewey's insistence on community. So um, another in another work about Dewey's philosophy, this is Edmondson quoting Boisvert. Boisvert argues that the political, social, economic, and educational challenges of the new millennium give fresh immediacy to Dewey's attempt to construct a new foundation for democracy. So this is interesting, the, the importance of democracy in that, you know, Dewey wants social reform, and he wants a new foundation for democracy, but you know he's he's not he's not directly political in any sense. That as we're going to see more and more, we get this picture of Dewey attempting to reform society, and even in a way to reform the democracy as as a part of that society, in order to create social change, in order to. Um, realize the social reforms that that he wants to see um okay in left back a century of battles over school reform respected education historian diane ravitch notes john dewey's influence in generating at least two of the misconceptions that now cripple american education the use of schools to solve social and political problems is one and two the depreciation of academics in favor of assorted activities. In-class warfare, besieged schools, bewildered parents, betrayed kids, and the attack on excellence, political scientist J. Martin Rochester points to Dewey as the source of most contemporary abuses in education policy. And Charles J. Sykes' dumbing down our kids is an expose of the problems of contemporary education and their source in the progressive education movement. So certainly there are sources critical of Dewey, uh, you know, contemporaries of Edmondson's. And it does seem that there is a, a sense, a, a growing resistance, which is certainly um, a good thing, certainly what we'd like to see. And this is something that I'll be coming to a little bit later on, um, especially with people writing, I think, in the 60s when it's happening, talking about um, 
problem. As Ravitch says, this new uh, educational philosophy whereby I think first universities, um, you know, in the sort of sweep of counterculture, and then later how this trickled down to K-12, to that, you know, education needs to solve problems like poverty, right? If education isn't addressing, you know, poverty and homelessness or racism, sexism, um, then, you know, it's it's not doing its job, that education gets a new mission. And this is part of, a, of an even more general problem about just this sense that education can do everything, this, uh, this silver bullet thinking, the silver bullet problem, that um, any job that we have to do, let's just give it to education, which has always seemed really strange to me. Um, as if education had this sterling track record of achievement of being able to do whatever it, whatever, whatever it's tasked with, I certainly, as, as human civilization, that force would be like science and technology. That's, those are where we've had our advances. And we keep burdening education with, you know, why aren't kids learning this or that in school? Whatever I think is important is what kids should be learning in school. But now, I mean, kids are, they're no longer reading the three R's. Like, they're, they're re reading. I mean, their literacy and numeracy are, you know, can be characterized as bad and getting worse in, in most in most countries with the most progressive education simply because they don't emphasize the three R's because they're because that's the old way of doing things. Okay. So continuing on. Elements of Dewey's thought. Uh, Dewey, the man and educator, um, Future teachers learn about him, but they don't get an opportunity to assess critically the Deweyan ideas. So even when people do learn about Dewey in education, they, they basically just learn about how great his ideas are, that there's not really a, a critical engagement with Dewey. So um, Dewey's famous for advocacy of basically socialism. He argued for greater government involvement in society uh, at large because our enjoyment of equality depends upon such intervention. Again, this emphasis on equality that we see going back to Rousseau and setting it up in, in the Rousseau versus Locke, this sort of great grandfather debate um, about equality versus liberty and the willingness to sacrifice liberty, liberty for equality, something that I think was alive in Rousseau, at least according to Bertrand Russell, and is certainly alive in Dewey. Such philosophical and political reconstruction is essential, Dewey believes, to preserve the American democratic experiment, indeed to save it from destruction. So Dewey, through his reform, is here to save America, thankfully. In order to survive, American democracy must be transformed by a revolution in education, followed by a social and economic revolution. One cannot occur without the other, but education must first be revolutionized because it is the process through which the needed transformation may be accomplished. So... Um, the idea here is first to change education and then 
you know, the people that we've educated will carry out the other changes that we want. Right? So first, revolutionize education. And then from there, you've got this, this staging pad to then revolutionize society and to revolutionize the economy. Basically, that's where we are right now. We're, in terms of Dewey's grand project, we are one down, two to go. The revolution of education is over. And the education revolution is now seeking, you know, it's moving on to its, basically, in this sense, to its second target, that the revolutionized education is now seeking to revolutionize society. And certainly we're seeing a lot of... Um, a lot of social changes. And, you know, according to this formulation, then the third thing will be economic. But, you know, it, it could be that it's happening on both fronts, that it's both social and economic right now. Dewey is often described as a philosophical pragmatist, a designation he shares with other American philosophers. Dewey argues that education, even more than politics, should promote the practical over the abstract. To pursue change through politics can be frustratingly slow. Using education to change the world is far more efficient. The ultimate result of such change is political and social transformation. So you, if you want to transform you know, politics and society... Don't run for office where you have to openly make a case and defend and, you know, answer <laughs> critique and criticism and, you know, through debate, vetting processes and, you know, the press. Um, just, just revolutionize education. It's so much less scrutinized, right? There's so little accountability comparatively. And so it's much more efficient to transform society by first transforming education and then it's strangely it's almost paradoxically it's more efficient to transform society indirectly if you just you know come out with your loud message about transforming society um and you know, that's how you you know for example a political campaign um i mean that that may or may not work but if you simply get to the work of transforming education itself then, yeah, more efficient way to transform society. But also much more sneaky, um, which I suppose becomes an ethical consideration, not, not, not a matter of efficiency. Yet, ironically, Dewey's educational system has every appearance of being grossly impractical. The more one reads Dewey, the more one is forced to conclude that his self-styled pragmatism is not so much a practical choice as it is a convenient cover for his politics. Dewey's philosophy, then, must always be interpreted in light of his preoccupation with social change. So what Edmondson is challenging here is that we actually shouldn't think of Dewey as a pedagogue at all. Um, we should think of Dewey as, in the most critical light, not as someone who wants to change education at all. And he doesn't, 
He doesn't want to make education better for education's sake. This is not about you know education as an end in itself. It's all about as a means to an end. It's all about basically mobilizing education in order to change the country in a way that people simply may not be focused on enough to be able to stop. It it's. I mean it. Uh, Edmondson comes up maybe almost to the point of saying that this is kind of a, a pedagogical philosophical coup d'etat, that this is a way to overthrow the existing ruling order, right? That you start with this kind of grassroots educational approach. And this is going to be even more explicit in Freire, that this uh, student center progressive education that it is an end run around politics. And even interestingly, you know, the, the largest uh, the largest voting group is parents. Now they're not they're not always, you know, unified on any, on any political issue. Um, but certainly parents you know, care about what what's happening to their kids in schools or what their kids are learning about. And so um Using education as an end run around what parents want and as an end run around uh, politics. And certainly we're going to see Freire take the baton from Dewey and take this to a whole new level. Uh, and let me just speak about uh, Freire just for two minutes here. Um, so Freire will say that the oppressed must be made politically literate so they can speak the word and proclaim the world. Redefining more students as oppressed via intersectionality and perverse incentives to recruit more students into oppressed victim camps indoctrinates change agents for particular purposes. Even something like change agent, that's certainly a phrase that even that Dewey would have been comfortable with too. And this makes children politically useful for the party that controls education which happens to be the left. Not necessarily a political party, but a political persuasion. As the fruition of the long march through the institutions. But in this case, it's institution singular, right? It's one institution in particular. It's the education institution. And thinking of this process, I use the word recruit, but the term grooming primarily referring to cult grooming, has been used. The way that you kind of start to prepare someone for thinking and believing um, and, and acting in certain ways. Indeed, in some places, Dewey chooses the more militant term instrumentalism rather than pragmatism to describe his philosophy because the former signals a stance more decidedly opposed to the ideas that, stop slow, the word here, sick, is retard, progress. Dewey is intent on raising the traditional landscape as a prerequisite to building anew. Yeah, that's progressivism. That's reform, right? Social change. We need to raise the traditional landscape, TC, to build anew, SC. Which is why he is often more concerned with undermining tradition and conventional religion 
than he is with finding more efficient ways for students to learn. So when you're too focused on, when the focus is on social change through education, it's no surprise when um, education and students become much more interested in social change, but they don't become better as students uh, because that's that's actually not the that's not really part of the mission. Indeed, Dewey's thought is characterized by hostility, not only to traditional religion but to all abstract and metaphysical ideas. Uh, Dewey's real opposition, though, may arise from his concern that a belief in objective truth is an impediment to the promulgation of his own philosophical ideas. So, the whole, like, the way that the f education system at the time was still primarily emphasizing, you know, objective knowledge over subjective experience. Um, this becomes, it becomes really difficult to cultivate change agents in an education system based on, you know, facts and logic and, you know, knowledge and, and what's, a, what is objective, what is known, right? Known knowledge. Um, but by emptying out this content or, um, as it's written, by raising the traditional landscape, uh, again, it, it just creates this vacuum that uh, on the surface, I think the educators are going to say, well, we're just going to, we're just going to make it more open and free and creative. And we're going to get rid of all of this, you know, old, dead, boring stuff. And I think that is just how it's sold to the public, especially to parents. And that's the marketing. But the truth is not that it's a matter of emptying it out to make it kind of, as I described earlier, to make it kind of open and free and uh, flexible and responsive and agile. There is a completely different curriculum that they want to move in right away. Right? So there's this kind of teacher-centeredness and then this dormant secular period where it's being emptied or hollowed out seemingly for, you know, um, benign, if not benevolent reasons. And then something else is moving in. It is not going too far to say that in the final analysis, Dewey is not most interested in the good of students, but rather the successful promotion of a political program. If that political program also happens to be good for the academic and moral benefit of students, as he undoubtedly thought it was, then it was a happy coincidence. So strangely, I mean, this is just one, you know, one man's argument, but um, it's certainly one that has to be taken very seriously, I think, that uh, education, strangely, has had its mission usurped, whereby it's no longer really focused on educating students. And that that explains why it's so bad at it. And, well, what is education good at doing? And to think that, well, it's always too easy at first when we start to consider a problem, like the problems in education and 
not enough young people becoming well-educated. And think, well, what's, you know, the system is broken. It's always tempting. It's seductive to just, well, the system's broken. Um, it's much more, I mean, it's more difficult at first, but perhaps it's often more revealing to ask the other question, which is, well, perhaps it is working exactly as it's intending to. It's just not operating according to any standard we might recognize as good. So what do we want education to produce? And it could be that for Dewey, we don't need more abstract philosophical geniuses like him, like Dewey, right? Dewey doesn't need education to produce more Deweys, more great philosophers, because he already has the, the correct idea, the one true idea. Now... We only need education to produce soldiers for his revolution. Now, this is a very simple way of putting it, and um, but it is a it is a, a tempting kind of preemptive conclusion. That again, uh, going back to George Will, when the progressives feel like they know how history is supposed to unfold, then they act in the world in such a way that they just want to bring about that, that you know, foreordained conclusion. And anything done in the service of that is good. It's just getting us to where we need to be, to where we're supposed to be. Okay, so there is um, also a section on Rousseau here in this text. And uh, this SC historical legacy and the, the trajectory... Um, again, from Rousseau to Dewey uh, to Freire. Uh, Dewey shares Rousseau's optimistic view that human beings are basically benevolent and human nature is easily molded. And he believes with Rousseau that moral education designed to subdue human nature by overcoming vice is harmful. And certainly in teacher-centeredness, that would be essential. Right, that we have to subdue human nature by overcoming vice. We teach young people to overcome, I mean, overcome the bad things that you want to do, that you shouldn't do. And that human nature is not really good or bad, but certainly it has to be subdued, right? That there's, that one cannot act on, you know, uh, wishes and desires um, and still be a, a productive part of a civilized society. That's a, that's a different question, frankly. Okay, so teacher-centered learning. Um, against this, Dewey adopts Rousseau's child-centered curriculum. It's just what I've been what I've been trying to say here. Um, as educational reformers would later call it, right? Child-centered. I mean, Rousseau himself didn't use the phrasing "child-centered," um, but um, Dewey's picking up Rousseau's philosophy and uh, child-centered. He further follows Rousseau's classroom strategy insofar as the curriculum is only apparently centered on the child. So it's actually not really about the child at all. The child's learning environment is in reality a grand manipulation 
on the part of his tutor or teacher. Rousseau disdained educational goals and ideals, just as Dewey would later do. In both cases, the opposition to such standards is supposedly for the sake of immediacy and relevance in the learning process. For both educators as well, learning largely consists of hands-on experience. Both Rousseau and Dewey depreciate the importance of books for students. Okay, so again, I think the most important thing to take away here is about reform. Reform in Dewey's sense, it's only superficially about educational reform. It's really about social reform through education. And certainly it's not reform via you know, democratic politics in any traditional sense, right? Of course, I mean, this is, unfortunately, history has these kinds of examples that Dewey wants to save democracy um, by circumventing the choices of actual voters and not, you know, presenting his ideas in ways that could be voted upon, but just making it making it seem like he just wants to perform education to make education better when he truly, according to Edmondson, wants to reform education to make society better, right? Um, to, to, to create a new foundation for American democracy without the consent of the governed would be another way to put the problem. So reform education, reform students. Reform society um, and, and the economy by fiat. So when they say, when people in edu education talk this way, um, that what they want is um, they want radical change or they want revolution, uh, believe them and do not believe that they want their education simply to to be a revolution of education. They just want to revolutionize learning and the way people learn. Revolutions are not typically, you know, restrained in the sense that, well, we've achieved our revolution um, in some way. Uh, now it's time for us to stop and sort of appreciate our gain. Okay, just one final, uh, two final notes here. Uh, the, the only problem with uh, all of these good ideas in education, all these reforms, thinking about, um, you know, Rousseau and, and Dewey, the only problem with, with all their good ideas is that none of them actually work, right? In the economic sphere, we've heard that how capitalism is, of course, the worst system, except for all the rest meaning, of course, that it is the best because it's the only one that works. And this is relevant um, in terms of, well, not only for, you know, preparing students to be social reformers, um, but it's also noted that, you know, of course, Dewey finds Rousseau to be an inspirational figure, judging by the prominence the French philosopher um, enjoys in that book. 
Dewey does, however, acknowledge an embarrassing fact of Rousseau's legacy. He writes Rousseau, while he was writing his Emile, Rousseau's kind of masterpiece in education, was allowing his own children to grow up entirely neglected by their parents, abandoned in a foundling asylum. Rousseau's life thus highlights an uncomfortable fact about progressive educational reform through the past decades. There often exists a disturbing split between abstract theory and actual experience. For an idea to be considered good, it is not necessary that its proponent has actually practiced it or lived it out or even proved it in the classroom. So, even a lot of the people who might be the most vocal proponents pushing the most radical reforms in education, they probably want their kids in private schools reading Shakespeare, right? That they want that um, elite education. They want them to become knowledgeable and to know the canon to be well-read and well-educated in a, in a kind of a classical sense. That this is very often, these reforms, they're for other people's kids. Um, and again, I kind of indicated about how some, something of a sloppy argument, I'll concede, that you know Rousseau and Dewey, they're, they're already meeting the quota for how many philosophers or how much of a cultural elite any given time needs. Um, and so they're not advocating for the creation of more philosophers. They're, they want more people who are willing to bring their ideas into the world more, right? Rather than cultivating a philosophical education for people who might come along and challenge their ideas. So uh, student-centeredness has been dominant for 100 years, as I often say. And... Um, you know, ostensibly it has more more good ideas than ever are coming into education all the time, despite um, decreasing achievement. And also no accountability for these dominant theories that have had their way for a century. Um, they continue to blame the fact that they haven't yet completely dominated the field. Um, that there's still some, you know, there's still some bastions of people who insist on teaching in, you know, good traditional teacher-centered ways or traditional or conservative ways. And that is what's preventing um, their ideas from breaking through. But, you know, certainly those who believe that education today is better than ever um, in that that is attributed to student-centeredness, they're certainly welcome to make their case. So last uh, note, uh, I'm going to be talking about Hannah Arendt in terms of, uh, as, as a sort of a hero in TC education. And um, this kind of goes back to this idea about students learning a little bit about Dewey, but not critically. Perhaps that's quite hard to do because Arendt found Dewey's thought too divorced from real life. And she complained of the ambiguity of his thought. Quote, what makes it so difficult to review this philosophy is that it is equally hard to agree or to disagree with. Certainly Edmondson finds it easy just to disagree with.
Okay, so I wanted to make a final general point. Okay. So, thinking about a possible endgame here of this Rousseau, Dewey, Freire, Triumvirate. And there's something that's very clear in the philosophical flavor from Rousseau to Dewey. But then when we get into Freire, we're going to see that there's a much more theological or religious flavor. Um, but it, perhaps in an unexpected way. But the thing that we're going to see is that there's this increase in a fanatical zealousness or fanatical zeal. And there are two ways to think about this. One is that that this that the theory coming from you know from Dewey and Freire, that the the that the weight of this theory is influencing practice in the way that it inspires action. Um, and that it, it informs radical, radical educators. The other way to think about this, right, or, is that, that there are already people who are, you know, in, who are radical in terms of their politics, who, um, who are, you know, a activistically or politically minded, and that they elevate this, this theory that, that, the, that the theories found in um, Freire and Dewey are convenient for them, that, that the theory suits their, their desired practice. And so the practice then is what um, prompts for the elevation of the theory, right? because the theory is a justification for what they want to do, which is to, you know, um, to tear down the current existing traditional structures, ostensibly just to get rid of them because they're bad, but um, in actuality, perhaps to replace them with, frankly, with themselves, which is typically what happens in a revolution. The problem with the way things are is that we didn't create them, and so we want to destroy and recreate what is in our own image, right? This sort of, this this power of God So the sense is that the theory is pre-chosen or pre-selected um, or is based on a, a pre-chosen or pre-selected course of action and that the theory is, um, is just a justification. Um, again, or it could be you know, the, the former interpretation that the influence of the theory itself inspires the action and uh, informs these uh, radical educator types. So there is a, a more politically intense, um, again, and less philosophical flavor when we get to Freire. And that there's, a, you know, reform that in its more intense form becomes radical and revolutionary. And probably the most radical form of revolution is what we call a reset. And, you know, just to use that term, um, it does seem that the first step has, uh, of this social and economic uh, revolution through education, through what I, what I might call the, the long march through a particular uh, institution, the long march through education. Education 
uh, educational theory has already been reset thoroughly. Um, again, I know that maybe even the mere existence of people like Edmondson and uh, some of the other critics of Dewey he mentioned uh, might not seem to support that. Um, but interestingly, educational practice, as I've maintained, hasn't really fully embraced um, SC to the extent the theory has. And so, um, well, maybe education hasn't really been fully reset in the sense that education is not dead, it's just dying. And so, to unchange education is still possible. Because even though the theory's been reset, educational practice hasn't, and so education in total hasn't. Right? It's not, it hasn't yet quite been lost. But certainly it's gained enough, uh, enough momentum that through education, the educational reform and the, um, you know, the, the graduates, um, you know, like the, the change agents that it produced are already able to change society and, and, and the economy. But anyway, unchanging education is still possible and um, undoing what Dewey has done is certainly going to be a part of that process. So I'll wrap up here and conclude uh, Dewey, The Undoing, uh, Season 2, Episode 6. Thanks very much for listening.